Welcome. Thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh leads us in the book of Mark and teaches us what baptism is and how repentance relates to baptism. You can join us by turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, A Baptism of Repentance. Mark chapter 1, first eight verses. Uh, If you want to follow along with me, let's begin. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me one is coming who is mightier than I and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Please bow with me and let's ask for God's grace. Oh, Lord, our God, Father, we just want to confess and acknowledge again before you. We are sinners in need of grace. Our sin is not light. It is not clean. We are doers of evil thinkers of evil, have hearts corrupted by evil, we speak evil, and it's ugly. It's not nice and polite, it's ugly before you. Oh God, have mercy on us. Father, thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for what you have done in order to make a way to bring us back to you. But even God, us who know this, us who have trusted in Christ, we still have this ridiculous temptation that we keep drifting into pride, thinking highly of ourselves. God, we just lower ourselves once again, Lord, reminding reminding ourselves, oh God, of our need of your constant grace and patience with us. Thank you for Christ and thank you for day by day gentleness and patience with us, O God. Lord, as we study through the truths that we're looking at today from your word, give us a fresh reminder of your grace. Give us a fresh reminder, Lord, of the, the calling, the, Lord, the obedience that you have called us into. And God, for any in the room that have not yet turned from their sins, still living in resistance, still refusing you, God. We beg that this this would be the time that their eternity has changed and they bow their knee to Christ. Please, God, work through your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see, shine light on your truths. Have mercy on me to preach. Please set a guard over my lips not to speak falsehood or what's unhelpful. All of us, God, I pray. Give us your grace in this time that every soul be affected by your truth, O God. 
We love you and it's for your glory we ask. We pray this through the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, Chuck Colson was known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man. He got that nickname by the ruthless nature that he operated politically. Uh, he once commented that he would walk over his grandmother for Richard Nixon. In his ruthlessness, he climbed his way to the top and found himself as a trusted advisor to the then president, Richard Nixon. His life dreams were fulfilled. He was happy. He had won. But when the Watergate scandal broke, he realized that his life of ruthlessness had caught up to him. In the turmoil of the days that unfolded, as new information kept coming out, it became apparent to him he was heading to prison. And his time at the top was crumbling. That season left him bewildered, broken, reeling, searching for answers, answers to the, the biggest questions of life. And in the midst of this time in God's providence, God brought him face to face with the message of the gospel, the message of salvation in Christ. Very quickly, he responded to the gospel. He believed. He repented. It actually became a very public thing. Some of you, if you may have been around at that season of time and watched the news, he announced it publicly in a press conference that he had committed his life to Jesus Christ. But, you know, men will kind of say anything facing a sentence. And many looked in and thought that this was the attempt of a man to get some leniency or maybe just a bit of public sympathy. But he caused a bit of a stir when he would not fight the allegations but pled guilty declared publicly that he wanted justice, wanted to serve the right sentence for his crimes, and he went to prison. In his time in prison, he began to grow in his new babyish faith. He was praying, asking God uh, for direction for his future. But by the time he left his seven-month sentence, he came out with a mission for life. He was going to devote his life, the rest of the life that God gave him to the, what would seem, inglamorous ministry to inmates. Still no doubt there were some who were thinking that uh, this will pass. This little, this little guilt trip, once he feels better, he'll come back to the old hymn. But for the next 39 years, until the day of his death in 2012... He devoted the entirety of himself to a new life and making the gospel known day by day, loving the inmates and day by day, making the gospel known in the culture at large. His life after conversion looked like a completely different man than the one before, bearing witness to the power of the gospel the dramatic nature of conversion. And he became another one of God's many living illustrations of the meaning of repentance. And might I add, joyful repentance. 
In, in the passage we just read here this morning, we're told about the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, God called John to be a prophet, gave him his message, gave him his works that he was to do. He was to herald out the message, the Messiah is coming. His kingdom is at hand, it is near. The time to enter that kingdom is now. Get ready. Repent, meaning turn from your sins and be ready for the Savior. And then as a sign of their repentance, God instructed John the Baptist that he was to baptize the people who had repented. It is repeatedly called in Scripture a baptism of repentance. If you look at the language in Matthew 3, baptism of repentance. Book of Luke, baptism of repentance. This, is, this language is repeatedly put together here. Now, someone could say, well, that's all well and good, preacher, but it doesn't apply to us. John had a baptism, and we've got a new one in Jesus. Well, kind of. Follow this out with me for a little bit. God gave John the command to preach the message of the gospel. It was the message of salvation in this coming Messiah. The only part that was lacking in the beginning of John's preaching was just who the Messiah was. When Jesus came on the scene, John began to herald, Jesus is him and call the people to look to Christ. And as a demonstration of their embracing of the Messiah and their turning from their sins, they were to be baptized. Now, this is the same baptism that Jesus himself underwent. Not because he needed repentance, he was sinless, but in order to identify with us, in order to fulfill all righteousness, in order to show some things. It's also the same baptism that Jesus then continued in the Gospels. That's kind of a big point, by the way. You, you could read about this in, in John 3, that as John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing, and John began to see, he even says, he must increase, I must decrease. As the notoriety and fame of John began to fade because the one whom all of this is about, all of history, all of scripture is about, Jesus is here. He began to fade, but Jesus then continued this work of baptizing. That shows a sense of a continuation of what God led John to begin. So it's not like, John the Baptist was in the Jordan River baptizing people for repentance. And then Jesus was in another village inviting people to bring their babies, their dogs, and their cats to come get sprinkled at the water cooler. There's a sense of continuation here. There's a continuation of the meaning. Continuation of the mode, meaning the way that it was done. And a continuation of the recipients. What does baptism mean? How is it to be done? Who is it for? Who gets it? That all has continuation. But so that we understand, there is a sense of newness to Christian baptism in the sense of completion of what John began. A sense of completion of what John was preaching. John kept declaring, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, I love that line. He's like, I ain't, I ain't fit to touch that guy's sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The water baptism was meant to picture this new thing that would come in Christ. So there is a 
newness to Christian baptism. But it's not like there's a complete separation. Baptism is still meant by God to mean the same thing. A demonstration of faith and repentance. And so what I want us to consider this morning is this. On other days as we have celebrated baptisms, we looked at other aspects of the theology of baptism and some of the various passages that God gives us. Here's the one we'll consider today. I want to ask the question, how is it that baptism is a demonstration of repentance? What, is, what, is, what are we supposed to see with this connection that the Bible's constantly showing us, the connection between repentance and baptism? So the way we're going to look at this this morning is this. Before we can understand how baptism demonstrates repentance, we need to first understand what repentance is. So we're going to look at these two points this morning, repentance and then how baptism demonstrates repentance. So those are the two points for the time that we'll spend. Let's get started then in number one, if you're taking notes, repentance. I I love the fact that so that we never misunderstand the meaning of words in the Bible, language changes over the course of time. So how do we know that the, the way we understand words is the way that God meant them in the scriptures? I just find it genius that God defines words so that throughout thousands of years of history, The meaning is never lost. Words like love, faith, righteousness. There will be entire chapters that explain what the word means. God has done the same thing with repentance. Places in the Bible where God shows us, here's what repentance is. I also love the fact that there are some places in the Bible where God shows us, here's what it's not. Judas. Here's what it's not. The magician in the book of Acts. God shows us what it is. God God shows us false repentance against the backdrop so that we can see the errors of it. But for some of your own study sometime, the parable of the prodigal son is probably the greatest passage helping us understand what repentance looks like than any other. A son who rejects his father, walks away, uh, spoiling the, the blessings that he's been given. But a day comes where he comes to his senses, Jesus told, resolves in his heart to return and he comes and returns in submission and humility to his father. Jesus instructing us to deny ourselves, die to ourselves, take up your cross daily and come follow. That's Jesus giving definition of repentance. Psalm 51 Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after he had committed his adultery with Bathsheba and even had committed murder. This is the prayer that he lifts up to God. So what ought to be going on in the heart of someone who repents? Psalm 51 contains a lifetime of meditation on those things. But at its most basic level, repentance is to change your mind. To change your mind. Now, on some other days, we'll look at the power of God at work in repentance. And you may say, well, what what do you mean the power of God? We're called to repent. Yes, but repeatedly, Scripture shows us this. We are so much in love with our sin and so much chained to our lust that the moral strength that it takes to lift the weight of leaving sin is too great for us. Unless God comes to our aid, we are unable to turn and come to Him. But when it comes to 
our responsibilities and what God calls us to in repentance, the command is to change your mind, to be heading one direction, but then to do an about face and travel in the opposite. It is to realize our evil. It is to agree with God. It is to agree with God on the ugliness of our sin. Listen to me. We will never repent while we're making excuses for why my sin is actually okay. Or because of this circumstance, it makes it, you know, there's a loophole. It's okay for me. So long as we're making excuses and justifications, we will never repent until we agree with God on the evilness of what we're doing. David in Psalm 51 even says, God, I agree with you in your judgment on me. You are blameless. It is to feel the ugliness. And then it is to turn and leave the sin. A lot of times repentance is misunderstood because people think that it is merely to feel bad for the sin, to feel remorse. But we see the Bible show examples of people who felt remorse but never repented unto life. Repentance is to resolve to leave our rebellion and our sin to God. It's always helpful to see it in some real examples. So if you want to flip over to a passage with me, look at Luke chapter 19 with me. The Bible has so many different uh, examples and illustrations of this. Uh, one that I have just always loved is in Luke 19. We got the story of a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. You remember the little kid's story. The wee little man who climbed the sycamore tree. Some of what the little song doesn't tell us is that Zacchaeus was a wee little crooked man. Wee little liar. And, and, and let, me, let me just pause for a second here. And let's, let's not glamorize him in any way. Sometimes people like to take um, accounts of the Bible and like to change them like into what they want them to be. The story of Zacchaeus is not the story of a man who was misunderstood. It's not the story of a man who actually had a heart of gold, but everybody thought wrongly about him. So don't judge, kids. That's not the story. The story of Zacchaeus is the account of a bad man, a crook, a liar. The dude lied to little old ladies and robbed them of their money. This is not a good man. It's not a story of justice. It's an account of grace. So Zacchaeus sees this whole crowd. We get the impression that he's only there that day to look at Jesus out of, out of curiosity, just wondering what it is that's happening here. And so who is this guy that everyone has been raving about all the time? We are told he was a man of Saul, a small stature. The wee little man is added in the songs. He climbs up a tree to try to look in and see this Jesus that everyone's going on about. Jesus is walking through crowds all around him. And here is Zacchaeus up in the tree and he looks at him, calls him by his name. That must have shocked Zacchaeus a little bit. Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. I love the subtle language of the way that the sovereignty of God is rich in every passage of the Bible. What do you mean you must stay at the house today? In the sovereignty of God, today's the day Zach's getting saved. You just don't know it yet. Zacchaeus comes down and they begin to walk back to his house. You got some of the snide remarks commented on by the Pharisees about Jesus going to stay at a wicked man's house. But as they're walking, there comes a point where Zacchaeus just 
stops. And I, I imagine him looking at the dirt and even unable to look in Jesus' eyes. And he just says, Lord, half of my possessions I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, that was the life of a tax collector, I will pay them back four times as much. Now, by the way, this comes right on the heels of another account of a rich man. If you look back at 18, this comes right on the heels of the account of the rich young ruler. If you remember that episode, a man who clearly recognized that Jesus is who he says he is. He comes to Jesus and he asks him about, how do I have eternal life? It's been commented on many times that many churches would have just gladly went ahead and received him in. This was the fine, upstanding kind of church member you want. Moral and got money. And he's asking about eternal life. But Jesus confronts his love of money. Jesus tells him that to repent of his obsession with money, he needed to turn his back on all of it. And the story ends, sadly, the man walks away unconverted because he could not part with his money. The episode ends with Jesus saying, it is harder for a rich man, or excuse me, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The apostles then ask, then who can be saved? Jesus responds, the things that are impossible with man are possible with God. There's the sovereignty of God in the work of repentance again. But right on the heels of that, we encounter Zacchaeus. Now, I want you to consider here then the difference between these two. The rich young ruler had a kind of faith, a kind of a belief. We've got to be careful when we say that. What we're saying is, as the book of James describes, a faith that is like the demons. They know who Jesus is. They know that he is Lord, but they do not have a friendly heart towards God. There's a kind of a belief that is just sort of like mentally nodding your head and agreeing with the fact, but that does not turn. So what is it about Zacchaeus that is the difference here? Zacchaeus has the saving kind of faith. Here's a way that we might say it. Zacchaeus has a repentant faith. In his faith, he turns from his direction. He's been living this lifestyle of obsession with money and self-indulgence, and he turns to Christ. You see what the Bible is doing in this? The Bible is showing us not, not only these accounts, but also true repentance, false repentance, true faith, and a faith that does not save. Zacchaeus turns. And then look at Jesus' response there in verse 9 of chapter 19 there. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, that's a good start. About 20 more years of good works and you'll earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. If you believe in any way, of a works-based righteousness, a works-based salvation and earning of eternal life. Any of the Christianese groups out there that teach this idea that over the course of a process, you earn merit with God or get some time off of purgatory, made up place, then they must answer this way. And this passage just flies in the face of anything that would, that would lead to this idea of an earning of salvation. No, look, look what he says here. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to, 
has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Friends, in a moment, in an instant, Zacchaeus crossed from death to life. Never lose your wonder over the fact that God's grace is so full that prostitutes and tax collectors and even you can be converted in a moment. The moment of turning in faith. Zacchaeus resolved to do certain deeds, certain works. That's what repentance is. Repentance is the decision to leave rebellion. Let's let's spell it out practically. That means leaving sin and planning to do obedience. But aren't you glad that God does not wait for us to complete all of the works and then maybe one day we're right with God at the moment of turning, at the moment of leaving, at the moment of resolving, trusting in Christ, conversion takes place. It's so different from the way that the world wants to make religion. Human thinking always wants to make, well, you know, myself as the standard. You know, I'm good and everyone good like me deserves eternal life. But when people hear the truth of it all, that no, you are not good. Before a holy God, you are corrupt. You must repent. And that means that there are some people that you think are undeserving. And they're going to make it into eternal life. There are some people you think are deserving and they will miss eternal life because they refused Christ. There's a lot of arguing with this. The way that it's worded a lot of times is, you're telling me that there are good people going to be in hell. And that prison inmate who killed a guy in the drunken brawl but came to Jesus in a chapel service, you're telling me he is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Well, first of all, no, understand this. There will be no good people in hell. Like the Bible absolutely teaches all good people are going to heaven. Okay, now don't stop listening. I baited you a little bit, okay? Because the Bible shows there is none who is good. We sometimes use that terminology. We call people a good man, but we got to understand what we mean by that. We mean that from an earthly kind of sense, from a, from a human kind of perspective. And even the Bible will occasionally use that kind of language. So let's not like scold Christians if they use that kind of language, but we do need to be careful with it. Because God shows that from his perspective, there is no one good. Don't believe me? Romans 3, if you want to turn there, you know the passage, many of you. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. That's not a fluke verse. When you read the Bible from start to finish, you encounter more than 50 places where God says that whenever he looks at the human heart, he sees corruption. Our hearts are deceitful. Other than Jesus Christ, there's never been a human who has lived that deserves eternal life. If you're in Romans 3, look over verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified in that 
biblical word, important biblical word, means to be made right with God. Being made right with God as a gift by His grace through the redemption, the work of Christ Jesus. What that is saying, friends, is that if we are going to be made right with God, then it has to come as a gift. In other words, not because I deserve it. You are not entitled to eternal life. You are not entitled to demand that you get to enter God's kingdom of heaven. God is firm. God is exacting. God is just. God is righteous. Crimes must be dealt with. You have broken the law of God. There will be justice. The mercy of God that he extends is that he has sent his son. And the work of Christ, the whole point of the work of Christ is that there was something owed to you and I. Justice. And Jesus became the the justice payment, took the wrath of God on himself as an offering for sins. Jesus has taken our place. The whole point is that he has taken what I ought to receive. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6 goes on to say that we are not simply people who occasionally commit sin. We're slaves of sin. Sin is the master that we serve because of our love for the pleasure of sin. Romans 6, 23 goes on to say that what we have earned because of this is death. So what does all this point to? It points to the fact this is all very different than the world wants to make religion. Christianity stands in contrast to every religion and every fake version of Christianity out there. Every other religion in the world is somehow revolved around self-salvation. It is only the gospel that is completely dependent on grace that someone else paid. There is the receiving of a gift and not the earning of eternal life. And this also points to the fact that the Bible says every single person must do this thing that the Bible calls repent, to turn in a heart of faith to Christ. Jesus said in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And in case there is misunderstanding, two verses later, he repeats the exact same thing. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Acts 17, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And it is the character of our God that when, when there is repentance, there is never a refusal of grace. God always responds the same way to anyone who comes to him looking for mercy. In fact, sometimes it's downright scandalous. There are some accounts in the Bible that I read and at first they make me a little bit uncomfortable by the amount of grace. There's a little bit in me that's just like, God, are you sure that dude deserves something? Grace, grace, grace. When there is repentance, the Bible is full of stories of the unlikely receiving grace. Do you want mercy from God? Do you want grace from God? Everyone who wants mercy gets mercy 
So long as we add in this phrase, so long as you come to God on his terms and not the ones you want to invent for yourself. His call is to repent. So this means there are those who will enter the kingdom of heaven who will be surprising. And there are those who will miss eternal life that according to human judgment would be in heaven. The Bible is full of stories of the unlikely receiving grace and eternal life. The Rahabs, the once swindling tax collectors, the thief on the cross, numerous murderers who received forgiveness, the woman at the well. But we also need to say this. This is a significant part that we have to understand and emphasize. The unlikely who come to Christ must leave the rebellion. See, there's this whole movement that you hear about all the time of, of this whole thing of, uh, hey, Jesus accepted everybody. Like, if you're going to be a real Christian, if you're going to be like Jesus, you gotta, you got you to gotta be tolerant. you got to embrace everything. you got to accept everybody. The problem with that is that it is missing the two key words. Jesus embraced everyone who repented. If you leave those two words out, you distort the entirety of the message. Jesus did not come to tell everybody, hey, just wanted to show up and say, everybody's okay. You know, I just came here to give the message. Nobody needs anything. Everybody's fine. No, he came to tell us. Your sin, and let me, let, me address, let me address some of you in the room who you don't think of yourself as dirty. Maybe your past is not all that stained. Maybe your sins have been the polite kind, the socially acceptable kind, and you don't think of yourself as unclean. Jesus came to tell you as well. Your sin has separated you from God. You are facing punishment for your sins, and he calls you to repent, leave your rebellion, leave your evil. And before you're ever going to do that, there has to be an owning up to the fact that there is rebellion and that your sin is ugly before a holy God. The whole message is distorted if repentance is left out. You know, friends, there are churches and Christians who need to hear a rebuke because there are those who come into churches seeking for answers but they're turned away by a self-righteous crowd who snubs their nose at anyone who doesn't look already cleaned up. They need to hear a rebuke about the embracing and the accepting work of Christ. But the answer is not to pretend that all sin is okay. Friends, the message that we Christians are to be heralding in a compelling and winsome, beautiful way to the world is come to Christ. Come one, come all. Is, is, your, is your past stained? So is mine. Is your sin awful? So is mine. Do you have really dirty looking things from your past or maybe even things from this morning? Have you done awful things in your life? There is no sin that is more powerful than the blood of Christ. There is no thing you have done that the power of the love of God will not overcome. God will embrace you when there is turning and trusting in Christ. But you cannot come and continue resistance to God. 
Friends, there is one door in. The door is Christ. And Jesus tells us the way that we enter is faith and this thing that God calls turning and leaving our sin. And friends, repentance then becomes the lifestyle of the Christian. It has to be. If you're confused about that and want to read more, look at Romans 8 sometimes and look at what it says about those who claim Christianity but are not leaving sin. Romans 8 tells us that the way that we know who the sons and daughters of God are, they are the ones who are marked by repentance, marked by leaving their sin. Rosaria Butterfield, um, who wrote a book a few years back called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And by the way, if you do not know who I'm talking about, please look this lady up. Fascinating account of her conversion. Uh, tenured professor at Syracuse University, writer of uh, many books and taking part at one time in a lifestyle of opposition to the gospel and antagonistic to gospel believers and overcome by the power of the gospel. She wrote this, Repentance is the daily posture of the Christian. The gospel life is a cross-bearing life. Let me say a word to you. Who You call yourself a Christian. You believe you are okay with God. Maybe you are, but the Bible warns and says maybe you are not. I want to ask you, Is your life a living illustration of the dramatic nature of conversion? When people look in, when your unbelieving friends look in at your life, would would they say that your life is an illustration of what it means to be transformed and, and to live a life of submission to Christ? Is your life a picture of dying to sin? Friends, I I want to tell you, if you answer that question, no, the Bible questions your salvation. I, I don't care how dramatic of a moment you had with Jesus when you were eight years old. I don't care if you still got in your record some certificate of baptism. Listen to me. It's not like you're going to be able to get to the kingdom of heaven, those gates, and present the certificate of baptism. Here's the proof that I'm a Christian. The Bible says the proof of a Christian is a lifestyle of repentance. That's the mark. It is just one of the biggest misunderstandings. And let me just also say different groups have their own versions of problems. Let me tell you one that has been a big problem in country Baptist. The idea that at eight years old, I can pray a prayer, have a special moment with Jesus. And then for the rest of my life, I'm good. Live how I please live like everybody else. Friends, the scripture is constantly warning us, examine yourself the way that you see whether or not you are truly in Christ is by examining the fruit of your life. Is there a lifestyle of repentance? Jesus warned, many times Jesus warned, and in Matthew 7, some of the scariest words in all of the Bible, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And I will tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Did you hear that last part there? You who practice lawlessness. Pastor, that kind of sounds like Jesus saying, we're saved by our works. No. You are converted in an instant 
at the moment of faith and repentance. But here's what the Bible is all the time showing. How do I know if I'm right? How do we know who the true sons and daughters of God are? They are the ones living repentance. True repentance is not continuing to resist God. True repentance is removing the hostility to God's law. True repentance is changing the heart from stubbornness to submission. That means there will be observable change. Before conversion, you had a friendship with your sin. You liked it. Repentance is declaring war on every part of your life that has been at war with the rule of God. Repentance is moving from loving sin to hating sin. It is thinking differently, loving differently, treasuring differently. A change will begin, emphasis on begin. It is not always quick and it's not always as quick as we want it to be but a change will begin that over the course of years is to be nothing short of transformative that's why places like Romans 12 uses the Greek word for metamorphosis friends we are not talking about making good men better that's always what the world wants to make religion right tell me I'm good but maybe I could recycle more it's not the message of the Bible the message of the Bible is not, you're good, but here's a couple ideas about how to get better. Listen to me. Jesus' message is about passing from death to life. You cannot get more dramatic than that. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. You do not just need self-improvement. You do not need the newest self-help book. Without Christ... You are dead. You are spiritually dead. You are dry bones lying out in a pasture. You can paint the bones, put a tie on them, and hang a cross necklace, but they are still bones. Those bones must be brought to life, and it is Christ who brings life. Friends, you can see why the message of Jesus is always unpopular. People love the version of Jesus they invent in their minds who tells me I'm already great. But the Son of God who says that you are evil and you need to be made into a new creation that is always going to be divisive. Telling the world you are not okay. You are not good. You are evil and need to be made new. You need to repent is about the most offensive message there is. But that is Jesus' message. Jesus' message is a call to repent and believe. So, moving on then to the second point, asking this question, how is baptism a demonstration of repentance? What does that mean? Well, well, for one, see this. God could have given any way that he wanted to as any act of a demonstration to show that a person trusted him. He could have picked any act. We talked about Rahab last week in our sermon through Joshua. Rahab was a prostitute turned to the Lord away from her sin. She was given an act to do that demonstrated that she believed and trusted in the Lord. She was told to hang a scarlet thread from her window. Now, some doubting skepticism might have resulted in her saying, a thread, really? What in the world is that going to do? No thread is going to save me. I don't really need to do this. It was a sign of her faith. 
In Egypt, during the 10th plague, the Passover, they were instructed to, to smear the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. Now, we're not told of any of the Israelites doing this, but I'm going to be willing to bet my house that some of them thought, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Seriously, how is that going to save me? This is, has no power. This is not going to do anything. Moses, we hate you. It was a sign of their faith. Now, in the providence of God, the sign also preached a sermon, meaning there was deeper meaning. There was something that it showed, but still, at its most basic level, the, the, the action of the sign showed faith and submission. Friends, at its most basic level, view baptism like that. Baptism is a sign that demonstrates that you trust and submit to Christ. But in the wisdom of God, baptism also preaches some things, meaning there is deeper meaning. There are some things that it shows. So what does it show? A number of things are shown, but specifically regarding this, it pictures the washing away of sins. If you want to flip to Acts 22 for a moment. Numerous times this is stated. Look at Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, we do not believe that the Bible teaches at all that baptism actually washes away that sin. Like that when we leave Ferdinand Forest today, it will be left with the grime of sin. There's not an actual thing here. It is picturing something. It is picturing the salvation that God has worked for help in that. Ephesians 5 tells us that when we have trusted in Christ, we are washed with the water of the word. What does that mean? Believing the word of God, believing the gospel results in salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing and the washing. Water baptism pictures the internal washing of regeneration. Okay, But something that is also not often understood or missed is that there are two parts of being washed, friends. When the Bible says that Jesus saves us from our sins, there are two things meant. One is the forgiveness of sins. You are no longer under the condemnation of God because your guilt has been removed. But the other part of what it means that Jesus saves us from our sins is the fact that Jesus leads us, enables us to practically leave sin in your life. There is a washing, there is a cleansing, there is a moving on to obedience that we are called to in this life. And baptism pictures this. And it is that leaving of sin in our lives that Romans 6 makes a point about. If you want to flip back to that passage, Romans 6 makes a quick point about the meaning of baptism. There's quite a bit about it in Romans 6. I'll cover a section just really quickly. Read the first six verses with me, and then we're almost done. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so the grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Here's the question being asked at the start of the text. If it is true that when a man turns to Christ, he is forgiven, justified, receives eternal life, he is made right with God, then does that mean that for the rest of his life he can live however he pleases? He's received grace. More sin just means more grace. No big deal. Can we trick God? Can we repent and believe, but then go on to live in the pleasures of sin and get eternal life? The answer to that is fairly strong. We're explained it like this. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to sin once for all. And when you were baptized, you were symbolically united to Christ and likened to Jesus' death and resurrection. Meaning in your baptism, you have pictured two deaths. You show like a drama being acted out. As you go under those waters, you are picturing the death of Jesus going under the waters of God's judgment, but then raising out to new life. But secondly, you are picturing your death. Your death to sin, your death to self and flesh, your death to the old you. And when you come back up, you are raised to a newness of life. And by the way, sprinkling can never picture that. The whole argument of chapter 6 breaks down if you change the mode of baptism. You change the way baptism was done. We believe there is only one baptism only one way it ought to be done, and that is the way that it's done in the Bible. That's not really debated. Historically, it was done by plunging beneath the water to show these things. But there is a sense in which when you are baptized, you shake your fist at your old life and your old sin, and you say, I am done with you. I am now living a new life in Christ. Baptism is a demonstration of repentance. It is for those who have heard the gospel, responded to it rightly. It is to be done the way that Jesus showed us. And so friend, at the end here, let me take just a second. I want to reason with you. Regardless of where you are, if you're here and you agree with the facts that Jesus is the Son of God, you believe that when Jesus speaks, it's true. You believe that He is who He says He is. Then I want to ask you, have you turned? Have you personally turned? Have you owned up to your need of this? Or do you kind of keep repeating the phrase in your mind, I'm sure I'll be fine, I'm sure I'll be fine. It is one of the biggest temptations that we see out there. This idea that for whatever reason that you give yourself, and there are a thousand, maybe it's because your grandpa was a preacher, or maybe it's because your parents brought you to Sunday school when you were a kid, or maybe it's just because you keep listening to the dumb country songs on the radio. I'm sure I'll be fine. I'm sure I'll be fine. You're calling Jesus a liar. You're calling Jesus a liar to deny what he says unless you repent you will all likewise perish. What are you waiting for? Why are you resisting? Why do you keep refusing? I don't think you have yet comprehended the danger that you are in 
by your constant self-assurance. And if you have trusted in Christ, if you have believed, if there has been a a moment that, that you know that at least right now you are trusting in him and you have turned to him, then let me ask you, have you been baptized? Have you followed this up with obedience? I realize people sometimes play these games, these games of kind of trying to outsmart God. Hey, pastor, I know that baptism doesn't save me, so I don't really need it. <laughs> You're not going to trick God. It is a demonstration of trusting and submission to Christ. And I have to challenge I have to challenge anyone who says, I would have my head cut off for Jesus because Jesus says that's a mark of a Christian. I have to challenge anyone who says, I would die for him, but I ain't getting in that water. There's something being shown here. Baptism is a demonstration and identifying with Christ. I am his. I belong with him. At its most basic level, it is declaring, I submit to the rule of King Jesus. Regardless of where you are, respond to the gospel rightly. Repent and believe. Follow up with whatever act of obedience God has for you next. Follow in submission to Christ. Well, before we end the service here, one last thing that we need to do is uh, call up those who are going to be baptized today. Present them before the church. So if you would be willing to come on up here. David and uh, Sarah, Charlene, Sandy, Jess and Liz, if you guys will come on up here. They all begged me not to make them speak. You do not have to. <laughs> Simply you're coming forward as expressing your desire to join the church today by baptism. Come on up here. Uh, let's bow and let's pray for the service and we'll pray for these folks. God in heaven, Father, we just repeatedly thank you for what you have done in Christ. Please, oh God, we pray, be at work in us, every soul who is here, that we be changed in whatever way we're needed. Father, I pray for these who are getting baptized today. God, I ask your blessing on them. Father, I pray that this would not be some act that is merely to feel better about themselves or some some act that would later be forgotten. Lord, we are praying that these souls will follow you for the rest of eternity. I pray that in the days to come, they will live obedience and bear fruit in such an abundant way that they show their conversion. Please, oh God, give grace to them. Be at work in their lives. Never let them stray. Keep them near to you, oh God, we pray. Father, please also bless the celebration we're about to take part in. Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed. We'll head on out here. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, A Baptism of Repentance. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIN, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.